You're listening to the Artistic Finance Podcast, show 58. On today's show, I interview Jim Jamiro. We talk about his time as CEO of Walt Disney Home Video, creating the Disney Channel, and taking his own media company, J2 Communications, public. We discuss his purchase of the National Lampoon brand, his love of the Great American Songbook, and his newest endeavor, producing musicals off-Broadway. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome, everyone, and a special welcome to my patrons. I'm your host, Ethan Steimel, and today I welcome Jim Jamiro to the podcast. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Ethan. Good to see you again. We are recording this on May 17th, 2021, amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, a Black Lives Matter slow burn across the world, and a Stop Asian Hate campaign in the USA. That's our historical backdrop. Well, part of it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's part of it. <laughs> um, Jim, I have three icebreakers off the top. First one, could you describe your demographics for us? Uh, I am uh, a male. I am a Caucasian. Uh, and I'm not revealing my age. How about that? <laughs> that's classified. <laughs> You're not the first person to not reveal no. their age. <laughs> uh, okay. I am uh, married. Uh, my education, uh, I have eight years of education. I got a, a bachelor's from Penn State, a master's from Syracuse. I worked for three years toward a PhD at Penn State. Never got the PhD because I didn't like the language requirement. So I've got like four years of postgraduate with one degree to show for it. And then uh, geographically, I live in Los Angeles. I was raised in Pittsburgh. I, my first real jobs were in New York City. I moved to Los Angeles to work for Disney. So I live in Los Angeles. I'm from Pittsburgh. And my heart and soul are in New York City. <laughs> I left them there. <laughs> and you and I met on uh, some off-Broadway reviews, musical reviews, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But I actually just assumed you, that you lived in New York City and later <laughs> on found out you live in L.A. You know, that's, that's the affinity I have for New York, because when I came up with the idea to do this, I wanted to do it in New York. I wanted to do it, you know, on 42nd Street. I didn't want to do it in L.A. So it, it felt really good. We have an apartment back there, so it was easy to, to get everything done. All right. Two, two more icebreakers. What is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? Boy, that, that, that's, a, that's like asking which is your favorite child. I would say a, a, a great musical comedy, music piece of musical theater would be number one. Followed very closely by a, a wonderful drama by somebody like Tennessee Williams or Arthur Miller, followed by a concert with Frank Sinatra. The first two you could do. I don't know if we could make the third one happen. No, no. <laughs> with VR and virtual no. reality, I anticipate that soon that will be able to happen. H holograms. Um, all right. And final icebreaker, which is, are you bad or good with money? Oh, that's really a good question. And, and I, because I think about it a lot, I'm, I'm excellent with money. Excellent. Uh, my, my mom and dad were excellent with money and I picked that up and it always astounds me when I see the people who aren't, because I, I don't find it that hard, but it does come natural to me. It's a very good question. Nobody's ever asked it before, but I've thought about it before. And, uh, I feel, I remember <laughs> by digress. I remember when I was working at CBS in New York, we got paid every two weeks 
And a lot of guys, really good guys, you know, bright men, two, two days before payday, they come say, hey, can I borrow 10 bucks till payday? You know, I mean, it was, it was a way of life. They just wanted, you know, lunch money to get through until the next paycheck. I never had that kind of problem, which is a very, it's a very interesting question you asked. It's really, well, you're, this is a finance program, so obviously. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a lucky guy uh, in the fact that I was always focused on on the, on the, what I would say, media and communication. From the time I was six or seven, I loved anything to do with media. I loved public speaking, acting in school plays, being on the debate team, editing the newspaper. I was announcing football games. I just, advertising, marketing, journalism, writing. I loved mass media, all of it. So when I graduated from high school, I went to Penn State and majored in mass media. And then when I was ready to get, get out of Penn State, I remember all of the industrial giants would come looking for employees, U.S. Steel and Alcoa in Pennsylvania, of course. And I, I didn't go to any of those because I knew that what I wanted to do was go to New York and work for CBS. And, and being the glamour industry, they weren't soliciting people. The opposite was happening. But I didn't attend any. I didn't, I didn't want to go to work for Alcoa. And then I majored in mass communication in Syracuse, three years more work. So I was so focused and I, I felt really lucky. And my big uh, subset of that focus was to be able to live in New York, a city which I cherished even from a young age and work for CBS, which at the time was the Tiffany network, number one in everything. Uh, and uh, without going into wonderful details of how I made that happen, I did make it happen. And one day, I was living on East 60th Street in New York City, walking to Black Rock at 60, uh, uh, 51st and, and, and 6th Avenue. And I was doing exactly what I wanted to do, where I wanted to do it, living in the city that I wanted to live in. So it was just a, a halcyon days for me. Then I got recruited by Walt Disney. And I said, no, I don't want to not interested because I'm living in New York and working for CBS and I don't want to move to California. And the guy that was trying to hire me, Rich Irvine, who's still a, a great buddy of mine, uh, was persistent. He would call every Friday and change the deal. You know, every Friday. I mean, he was really happily persistent. And finally, uh, I said, you know, this is a, an amazing job opportunity. And I, I, I looked at the pyramid, which says that when you get to the top of a, a business pyramid, there are far many more people wanting good jobs and there are good jobs. I mean, high level jobs. That's just the way it is in my experience. So I finally thought, you know, I, I got to do this. So I, I ended up leaving New York and leaving CBS and coming out to Los Angeles to work for Disney. As it turned out, it was the greatest career move I could ever have made uh, for two reasons. One was that Disney at that time was very undermanaged. I mean, very undermanaged. They had, they had a, a, a huge vacuum that had been left when Walt died in 1966. And the people around there were good guys, wonderful guys and, and, and gals, women, uh, but they were atrophied. They, they were immobilized. Walt had never created a, 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 a succession plan. Uh, they were second guessing themselves. What would Walt have done? And they were, they were just, uh, they were just atrophied in so, in so many ways. I came into that management void as a kid from New York. I didn't have the baggage of having known Walt. Uh, and, and so I was, I was, I was more, I was emancipated from all of that. And I was able to fill 
a gap that probably at that time they didn't even know existed. Uh, the second reason it was perfect for me was because the culture was perfect. I loved, I loved the, the culture there. It was, a, it was an ethical culture. It was a culture where you woke up in the morning and really tried as best you could to make people happy, tried to give people the proper value for the money, the, the, just the opposite of, of fleecing people, if I may. And so I, I loved being in that environment. I had a man that worked for me, Art Reynolds, who said once that when you work at Disney, your career goals and your life goals can be the same. And I, I knew exactly what he meant by that. So uh, I, I, you know, a lot of people like to say things always turn out for the best, which I think is nonsense. You can never know that things turn out for the best. It's impossible to know that. But you can know that things turn out well, great. So I can say that I can't imagine anything being better for me than having worked at Disney uh, when I did. Uh, but who knows if I had taken another route, but it would turn out to be a wonderful route about which I have no complaints to say the least. And, uh, uh, and of course I've been out in LA ever since. And after I moved to Los Angeles, I was moved, missing New York so much that I bought a place in New York. I was renting in Los Angeles and I bought a, a co-op in New York City, which I still have. So I'm able to indulge my passion for New York frequently. <laughs> When you moved to L.A. to work for Disney, how old were you at that time? Very early 30s. Okay, so there's a lot. If anybody reads your bio, which will be available on our website and in the show notes, there's a, there's a lot to your bio. So today I'm just going to focus on three things, which maybe will tangent into more. But that's going to be your your time at Disney, your connection with the J2 Communications and the National Lampoon brand, and then the J2 Spotlight musical reviews in New York City. Okay, so first off, Walt Disney, which you told us already a little bit about, but what exactly were you doing there? Because there's so much to Disney. There's parks and there's media. What did you do? Well, I, I, I went out there to run a division, which was called the Media Company. And what, what we did, uh, this was in 1973. And what we were doing in those days in 1973 is we were we were we were doing ancillary activities for Disney motion pictures. In other words, Disney did theatrical releases of motion pictures. And then we found three things that we could do with them after theatrical. One was break them up into small things and sell them as eight millimeter home movies, which big, big in those days. Second was uh, do what we call non-theatrical, take 16 millimeter versions of those films and show them to schools and clubs and PTAs and even prisons and airlines and all that kind of thing. And the third was educational media, uh, breaking those things up into little story lessons for people and selling them to schools. So we had three activities, which were really very profitable activities, ancillary activities they were called, in which we could take existing product and repurpose it for other things in which there were three. Then some miracles started to happen. By 1975 or 1976, two things happened that were co-revolutions in the media business. One was satellite-delivered television, HBO, Showtime. And the second was video cassette distribution, where for the first time, people could buy uh, something, show it right on their television set, or time shift on their television set. What did this mean? 
it meant, and these became extremely important. So that what happened was that the ancillary activities all of a sudden didn't become so ancillary anymore. They were really far more important. You know, eight millimeter home movies was a nice little business, you know, little snippets of Mickey Mouse cartoons and so forth, but nothing like the video cassette business was going to be. So, so we had distribution of, uh, movies to pay television, which became ancillary, and distribution to, uh, of movies on home video, which became ancillary. And these became massive. By the time uh, the early 80s came around, I was, we were making more money distributing home video product than they were theatrical. We were making more money in the home market than, uh, than they were making uh, distributing these films in theaters. Uh, and by the way, there's an interesting subset to that. These two uh, ancillary activities, massive ancillary activities, were uh, very controversial. And the reason was it, on the, uh, based on the reality that people don't like change. So all the studios, especially Disney, which was kind of old fashioned in a way, uh, were, uh, were beholden to the theaters. They, they had made their money through the theater since the 30s. They were the, they, they were the bread and butter. They washed each other's hands as theatrical distributors in Walt Disney. And so when Disney was about to take these movies and put them on home video or on pay television and compete with the movie theaters, it became very controversial. So the existing infrastructure at Disney, the theatrical distribution guys, uh, were resistant. They didn't want. They didn't want to have blowback from their customers, who they'd known and loved through the years. They didn't want to have competition for the, you know, what had been the primary means of of revenue generation. Well, as so, so it was uh, very controversial. And I was in the middle of all that, you know, because I was trying to do the new, great, exciting, dynamic thing and the, the infrastructure. And by the way, that was happening at all of the studios. It was the same, very, very interesting problem. And there was one really smart guy at Disney who was on my side, and we eventually prevailed, obviously, uh, Don Tatum. He said, we're not abandoning the Disney audience. We're simply following them into the home. It was his way of saying, we're in the content business here. We don't make judgments about how people get this content. We just make it available to them. And obviously, it was clear people what people wanted to do was, uh, was watch things Disney in, in the comfort of their homes. At that same time, uh, in 1977, which is very early on, I looked at what was going on with our distribution to pay television, HBO and Showtime, and I realized how important the D Disney movies were to these services. And I also realized that the economics of pay television were such that we could create our own distribution network, something called the Disney Channel. I went to the board of directors in 1977. They said, look, we're making a ton of money licensing these movies to HBO and Showtime, but if we're willing to make a massive investment and do our own thing and control the distribution, we can make a lot more money and create all kinds of platforms for interactive uh, marketing programs within the Disney organization and all kinds of wonderful things would happen. Because of the atrophy and immobilization about which I earlier spoke, the company said, no, we can't do that. You know, they were terrified. I mean, I, I would walk in and propose the Disney Channel. I could see the perspiration coming out of their foreheads, you know. They didn't want to, they said, you know, just take the easy way out, you know. So from 1977 to 1982, literally five years, I persisted on trying to get them to approve the idea of the Disney Channel. And during that time, I'd start Walt Disney Home Video, became massive. Uh, and I admit, 
one thing I always brag about, that I was very good at being persistent in proposing the idea of the Disney Channel, but not going over, you know, not, not, not becoming a, a pain in the neck for these people. But I did I come up with new numbers all the time. Look at this, look what we could do. It was just, and finally, in August of 1982, one of the best single days of my life, they said, okay, you got it, you know, you, you got it, here it is. Well, the, the problem was, not, not the problem, but one of the interesting realities was between 1977 uh, and, and when I first proposed the idea, in 1982, the price of entry had gone up like 35 times <laughs> because the, the industry, you know, when I proposed the idea in 1977, there weren't even satellites yet. Pay television was 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 uh, dis distribution dis dis distributed in that time by bicycling home videos around, literally bicycling from one cable station to another. Satellite came in, so we had to get two satellite transponders, which we did on Galaxy, nineteen million dollars, which was big money in nineteen eighty two, and uh, have you know full fledged programming and all that kind of stuff. So we spent like a lot of money, as it turns out. While it was a lot of money relative to 1977, it was peanuts in the sense that the Disney Channel became a cash cow so fast that that, you know, the, the, the return on investment was just over the moon, you know, and it, it was it became inconsequential. So that's a, a very short version of how that all happened. And then we launched the Disney Channel on time, uh, which was another miracle. Uh, but we, we we delayed it one week because I we set it for April 11th. Was it April 11th? Yeah, April 11th, 1983. And then a couple of weeks after we did that, I realized that the Academy Award it was on a Monday. The Academy Awards were that night. The Academy Awards were on a Monday in those days. And I said, ah, we don't want to compete with the Academy Awards our first night, you know. So we moved it one week till April 18th. We launched at seven o'clock in the morning, New York time four o'clock LA time. I was there. <laughs> I was out of bed. <laughs> and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. That That is amazing. Because one, I've never lived in a world without the Disney Channel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's just amazing to sort of hear. And also, I, I didn't have cable growing up, but I didn't realize that satellite television was that early. Like I thought it w didn't really get traction till like the 90s. And now I'm realizing, no, it was around a, well before I thought. That's right. I think I think we started to license our movies to HBO, I think, 77 or something like that. Uh, as I said, they were still bicycling in those days. Yeah, I've been around a while. Well, well the other interesting thing is, uh, I mean, who would have dreamed? I'm talking to you about a revolution that happened, you know, some years ago. And now all these things are being eclipsed by streaming. So, you know. It just, yeah. Well, another thing I wanted to comment on was the the video, the home video. Did that happen at the basically the same time as the Disney Channel? Well, out, no, before uh, that was the that was why I I, I kept so busy because I, I we started home video in about 1977 or 78, so that so that while I was being persistent in trying to get them to accept the idea of the Disney Channel from 77 to 82. I was building home video at the same time, so that so that so that took you know assuaged any any pain I was having because they, they wouldn't let me do the Disney Channel. I I I had a day job, you know, <laughs> and and that worked. That and that was that was good stuff, you know. I mean, that was that was a that was a wonderful thing. 
I, I still think of the conflict, though, you know, and so what would happen is they, they wouldn't want to give us the good stuff, you know, what we had at Disney called the family jewels, you know, so they would, I would get Tron to put out on home video, but Snow White or Bambi, Pinocchio, you know, that wouldn't happen for a long, long time. And, and one of the big problems that was piracy, of course, there was a lot of concern about piracy. You know, I look back on that as kind of kind of a fun battle, you know, but in, in retrospect, I was calling, you know, oh, give me give me Snow White, you know, we can sell a billion of those. <laughs> that, you know, that's so funny because piracy, I now remember that from when I was younger, that was a bigger deal. Obviously, it's still around today. But in the digital world, I find it more difficult. Like I remember when I was younger, I would copy CDs, DVDs, videotapes. <laughs> but now I don't copy anything because I just don't know how the technology works. <laughs> well, that, because it, it was the evolution, right? Because because when, when digital first came out, which was CDs, before there were a lot of computers, right? CDs, say in the early 80s, that really exacerbated piracy, right? Because that was the perfect master. I mean, you could pirate from a video cassette tape but that wasn't high quality but but a cd was a was the digital perfection so that became like a master what we call a master this is before the computer issues that you were talking about right say in 1980 when cd first came out so that was really a, a bigger problem for piracy for a while until all the coding and things that you're talking about happened I, I don't know when Disney stopped making videotapes. I assume they have stopped making them. <laughs> Good assumption. <laughs> <laughs> but but growing up, I'm a child of the 90s. You know, you would go to the store and get a videotape and it would just come in a, you know, a five inch by eight inch box. Very simple. But Disney always came in. They always have to aggrandize everything. So the box would be like eight inches wide by 12 inches tall. And it wouldn't fit on the shelf like all the other videotapes. <laughs> but you always knew looking over at the video shelf, what was a Disney movie because it was so colorful and big. Part of my childhood was like those giant videotape boxes. And now I guess anybody may be born after 2000 has no idea what those are. <laughs> those were called clamshells. It was called clamshell packaging, uh, which we did. And yeah, you're right. It was a, it was much more expensive and a much more ornate. And, 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 you know, and you could open it up a nice way. You could put a little folder in there in a nicer way. But it did create problems. Like somebody, it was like somebody doing something I never used to like was trying to be clever with their business cards and making them bigger than the normal business cards. And they don't fit into your, <laughs> so, but, but I, I know we, we did pioneer a, a lot of that to try to, well, like I said, everything was special. You know, we tried, you know, we you really woke up in the morning at Disney and, and tried to do something a little bit better, a little bit different than anybody. You know, I succeed, but, but that was your, that was your, that was your, uh, uh, modus operandi, as it were. Okay, and then last question on Disney: uh, When did you leave there, or how you start? You said you started in '73. Uh, when did you leave? So, but so in the mid in the mid '80s, I, I began to get restless, and I was getting unsolicited telephone calls from financiers in New York City, saying, in essence, this: We are living in a period now where there is much more money available for investment in new companies than there is management. So that if you want to start your own company, you know, we, we would be able to do that. Well, I'm an entrepreneur. Always, uh, I, I was an entrepreneur at Disney, really. They call it intrapreneur when, you, when you're an entrepreneur within a company, intrapreneur, that word. And I was that. I mean, there's no, no question about that. I like to be on my own. I'm an independent person. And I thought, well, th this could be an interesting opportunity. 
And so uh, I raised money through a public offering and started my own company. Uh, I had a, a dream, which, which we made come true, which was to create star-driven original videos. Prior to my starting the company, the only video sales and rentals that there were, were, were recycled, old existing movies, television shows. Nobody, except a couple of small exceptions, were doing videos that in and of themselves created a market, not building on a market that we created another distribution uh, scheme. And I thought, well, why not? If you can have television shows that in and of themselves become po popular, or movies or Broadway shows. Why can't a video be its own thing, create its own world? So we started a company called J2 Communications. J2 may have a familiar ring to you, uh, which we'll talk about later. And, and we, we had a, a so-called videos with star power. And we did have stars, Carol Burnett, Tim Conway, Muhammad Ali for sports, uh, the greatest uh, and most famous chef at the time, Paul Prudhomme doing cooking shows. We had, we had so, so many of them and we marketed them to a fairly well, I must say. When I was at Disney, we spent 7% of our annual budget on marketing. So when I started my own company and my business plan, I put 15% in there for marketing. I think, well, we're a new company. We've got we to you know, invest in creating our brand and awareness and all of that stuff. So I put 15% in there. And the first year we ended up spending 20% on marketing, but it turned out to be a wise decision because what, what we would do is you have to do what, what I call marketing 101. You have to do the basics. You have to have good key art. You have to have good packaging. You have to go to one sheet, some ads in the trade journals. So, okay, you do all that. For most people at that time, that was the end of it. You, you did those basic things and you went out and tried to sell as many videos as you could. Once we would do that, I would, we would have meetings and I would say, okay, now where do we go from here? You know, we've done all the basic, love the key art, packaging looks great, this poster looks terrific, ad looks good in Video, video Age magazine. How, where do we go from here? And we would brainstorm ideas. And we ended up really being, uh, I would say, very innovative, not just because we were a pretty good team of people. We emphasized, we worked on it. And I began to believe that I, that I could legislate creativity. I could get people in a room motivate them in such a way, build a dream for them or have them reach, you know, man's reach that exceed his grasp, that old expression. And, and I could get people to, to come up with ideas that they didn't even know they had inside them. And so we had tremendous numbers of innovations that held us in, in good stead. And, and, uh, and we were able to succeed in doing all of that. So you're just chilling at Disney, working, working, working. And somebody says, well, you can start your own company. And so you just started a public company. You make it sound so simple. Well, you know, <laughs> probably wasn't so simple at the time. <laughs> and by the way, I wasn't, I never chilled at this. <laughs> just a joke. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I never thought of it. <laughs> well, because today IPOs still happen, but it's always, it's just such a big ordeal. And now they're doing SPACs because it's easier than IPOs. So you're just like, oh, you know, it was a public offering. It was good, good. <laughs> what did you learn from taking a uh, company public? I don't know whether there was any great, great new learning to tell you the truth, because it was such a, it was such a logical next step. I, I had with me five people that had worked for me at Disney who, who wanted to come with me. So I had, I had a coterie of people. We were a well-oiled machine. 
and and they all wanted wanted to be with me rather than stay stay at Disney. So so when we when we did the road show for the public offering, I remember we love the fact that you're a team. We the gym has surrounded himself with these really terrific people. But I I wouldn't say there were great learning lessons because everything that I did was 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 kind of a logical next step. It just went from one thing to another, like licensing to HBO to creating the Disney Channel, going from eight millimeter home movies, which are home entertainment, to home video, which is home entertainment. But everything just flowed so naturally. And, and that's another interesting thing about my career. I, I took after my dad in seeing life, and I don't know if this is necessarily a good or a bad thing, but it's just the way I conducted my life, and certainly my dad did as well. Seeing life career-wise, as one uh, single progression up the ladder to more money, better job, more money, better job. Bigger. I mean, it was, it was part of how America worked in those days, you know, that you started out out of college until retirement age, and it was a constant climb up a nice, pleasant, wonderful, ever more fulfilling and rewarding hill. And that's how I live my life. Now, I know a lot of people that didn't want to live their life that way. They were, I don't want to do this, you know, like, like the old Broadway musical, Do Re Me. I thought the American dream was wait for that one big break, you know, give the dice a shake. Well, I did it a different way. Everything was, was a steady, wonderful progression. So that I was always better off at 35 than 25, better off at 45 and 30, you know, it, it, so all of that, was so sequential for me. Okay, so then the history of J2. So I want to talk about the National Lampoon brand because J2 bought National Lampoon. Tell tell us about that. So by 19 so by 1990 or 91 we were we were rolling in money. J2 was wildly successful and I was looking for something else to do. Somebody presented the idea of National Lampoon to me. National Lampoon had been losing money for 10 straight years. They had given up on the magazine in a lot of ways. They've got Hollywood in their lives after the monumental success of Animal House. And so they weren't, they didn't have their eye on the ball and they were this close to bankruptcy. I looked at that opportunity. I said, you know, the best thing you can do in life is model whatever you do next on your prior experience, because I believe, I'm not the first one to say this, needless to say, there is no match for experience. None, zero, forget it. (laughs) Nothing, nothing takes the place of experience in anything you do in life. I looked at National Lampoon as a great brand. Now that may seem like exposition of the obvious today, but in in 1990, the word brand was not bandied about the way it is today. Uh, You can trust me on that, it was just not used. So that for example, when American Airlines bought TWA some years ago, New York Times said American Airlines bought the TWA brand. They didn't used to talk that way. They just didn't. They would said bought TWA. At that time, I said to myself, there are only three brands in the entertainment business. One is Disney, which is a preeminent brand. Second is Playboy. And third is National Lampoon. They are the only three brands. Paramount is not a brand. Universal is not a brand. Columbia is not a brand. 20th Century Fox is not a brand, really. What do I mean by brand? It, it, it is a brand that says... You can put your name on this product, movie, television, home video, merchandise, whatever, and people will automatically know the first thing about it in marketing. What's the first thing you have to do in marketing? Tell people what it is. Well, you put National Lampoon on something, they already know what it is. It's a something funny. You put Playboy on something, something sexy. 
you put Disney on something, something family. The first 25% of marketing is already taken care of. If you're a grouch and you don't like funny things, you're, you just turn away from National Lampoon, you don't have to learn anymore. I thought, oh my goodness, I have a brand here. If I know anything, it's about brand marketing, not because I'm smarter than anybody else, but I worked at Disney. That's called, that's the experience. So that I knew everything there is to know about brand marketing because that's what we did there. You know, when you work at Disney, you are told that everything you do supports and is fed by everything else because you know that the people who go to Disneyland are likely to subscribe to the Disney Channel and people who subscribe to the Disney Channel will buy a Mickey Mouse t-shirt and that person will go to a Disney movie. So you have only one thing going on. There's only one thing. I realized that those were the only three brands. So I can buy the National Lampoon, which is doing nothing, and get involved in all areas of media and merchandising in the great footsteps of Disney, everything supports and, su and is supported by everything else. So we can make National Lampoon movies, National Lampoon television shows, National Lampoon uh, magazine, of course, National Lampoon merchandise, National Lampoon video games, and so forth. So that was the dream and the vision. And we made that happen. We got into merchandise, we got into comic books, we got into more movies, uh, lots of television shows, revitalized the magazine. So we just copied in a way, the, the marketing genius of Walt Disney by buying the National Lampoon, where I went from family entertainment to comedy, looked like a change, but it wasn't a change because from a marketing point of view, it was the same paradigm. At the time, was it like well known that National Lampoon was going bankrupt? Like, were there a lot of people that wanted to buy that brand or were, was, were people staying away and you thought, well, I'll take the risk here because I see the potential? I think I think people were staying away. I, I think it was, you know, 10 years is a long time. Uh, and I think that, you know, in retrospect, because I was always surprised that a large media conglomerate didn't buy that brand, Warner Brothers, for example, because they, they had everything in place. They had publishing, they had movies, they had television, the home video, uh, and we didn't have all those mechanisms in place, right? We had to license those things. I, I remember thinking, why doesn't Warner Brothers buy this? Because they can bring all their people in, magazine guys, book guys, movie guys, television guys, home video guys, say, hey, look, you people are spending X millions of dollars on development every year. Got a new toy for you, Nash Lampoon. Come back here in six months with your... And I thought that would be really a piece of cake. For reasons that I don't understand, they never bought it. Uh, and I did. We didn't have nearly the resources of Warner Brothers in terms of all of these mechanisms of distribution, but that didn't matter because we could find people who did that under license. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's a mystery. You know, I remember when, when we first bought the Nash Lampoon, you know, video, uh, there was there was a lot of activity, a, a boring activity in, in, in websites and everything. And we went over to see a guy who was in the, in the sports business. He said, well, we're going to spend, uh, you know, we're going to spend $50 million on marketing in the first six months here. And I said, boy, that's a lot of money. And he said, yeah, we got to build our brand. And on the way back to the office, I said to my colleague, well, we just saved $50 million. You know, the way of saying, because we already built, we already had a brand that was well known. Yeah. And it's also amazing to me that they were going bankrupt because I, everybody knows Animal House. And to me, it's just crazy that such a big successful movie or company that owns the movie it's sort of mind boggling to me that they could even go bankrupt because they would always have that movie to save them. <laughs> it was a license, you know, it was a license to Universal. So the amount of money was dropped right to the bottom line, but, but it was only a license. Since you picked them up, 
uh, and you said you didn't have as much resources as Warner Brothers. Did you sort of like get a really good deal with it or did you sort of pay them a, a market value appropriate amount? It was a stock deal. It was an all stock deal. They were public. We were public. So it was, it was a stock deal. Uh, no cash at all. You know, I think I think we got a good deal. I mean, I think we were I think I, I saw the extremists uh, in which they were. Uh, they, they really had to sell. They didn't want to go into bankruptcy. They had to find somebody who was going to invest some money in, the, in, in it. Uh, and, and I was that person. So I think we were able to take advantage of the, of the leverage that that provided us in retrospect. I mean, you always wish you could have done a little better, I guess, in any deal. But I think, I think we did fine. So you, you were happy and they were happy enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Then J2 Communications. You sold that company, closed that company. Does that company still exist? I sold it to, to, to some uh, people from Indianapolis, as it turns out. Uh, that turned out to be great for me and many of the executives at the company. It did not turn out to be great for the shareholders, uh, but that's just that's just the way it is. So I looked up National Lampoon, which I don't know if that's J two Communication, if that's a separate company. It's now separate. J two National Lampoon was the, was the company, right? That was my company. And then when the new guys came in, they weren't interested in J two, uh, the, the video business. They that was the Lampoon brand in which they were interested. So they dropped J two, which was fine. That was their prerogative. We got paid, you know. And so then it just became National Lampoon. J2 went the way of all flesh and then it languished for a while and then it was sold again. And, you know, it's, it's definitely uh, on hard times right now, to be honest with you, including certainly the price of the stock. Yeah, it has a ticker NLMP, National Lampoon, but it's at 17 cents a share for what that's worth. <laughs> yeah, well, I, well I, I, I got out of there uh, Ethan, in, in 2002, so it's almost 20 years. That's a that's a long time to to engage in a slide, you know. That seventeen cents a share, you can't get that on just any exchange. But my thoughts is like I should go buy, you know, a hundred dollars of the shares just to see what happens. Well, you wouldn't have much downside, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Like okay, um, so I actually met you by lighting some off Broadway musical reviews in spring of twenty twenty, a company called the J Two Spotlight Company. My friend, director Rob Schneider, invited me to participate, and that's actually where I met you, though I didn't actually ever talk to you because I was busy lighting. <laughs> <laughs> but you were always there, always had a smile on your face, always happy to be there. Can you tell us what J2 Spotlight is and what its purpose? I'll start out with, 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 with something that may sound like hyperbole, but it's not. I cannot adequately express to you the passion I have for musical theater. I, it's impossible. I mean, I, I it's just I cherish it, and I always dream that I maybe do something about it. Several years ago, I went to a Studio Fifty Four Below, Fifty Four Below stage reading of the, on the occasion of the fiftieth anniversary of the Happy Time, the Candor and Ebb musical that starred originally Robert Goulet, and it was wonderful. My friend Jim Brochu was in it. I just loved. It. I had seen the original cast of the Happy Time. Because I saw all these shows. It was my life just going to see all these shows. I lived in New York. I used to see them all 20 times. I, 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 just, I just loved it. And I thought, boy, this is really interesting. Who's doing this? So I called Jim. And I said, Jim, who put this thing together? And he said, it was Rob Schneider. So I called Rob. We went to the Apple Jack Diner for lunch. Uh, and I said, Rob, I saw it. Well, wonderful. Of course, we, we, we didn't get the business for a long time. We were talking about our joint passion for musical theater. And then uh, I said, you want to do some more of these? And uh, by the end of that lunch, we had a handshake deal on doing 
something that we were calling the J2 Spotlight Musical Theater. And we were going to do revivals off-Broadway, fully staged revivals, not like staged readings, fully staged revivals of worthy Broadway musicals. To say the least, I'm deliriously happy about it. Uh, Rob is, I, I can't even imagine that there could be a better artistic director and partner for doing this than him because uh, he, he checks all of the boxes, you know, that you need creativity, re reliability, you know, it's just, just wonderful. And, he, and by the way, I'm going to be seeing him in a couple of weeks. He's coming out to LA. So uh, we, we set off uh, to do it. And when, when I, when I knew you, uh, Ethan, that was our first season. Uh, and we did, we did Seesaw and then we did No Strings. And then we did a wonderful dress rehearsal on March 11th of, of last year of uh, a class act. Uh, and we were ready to go to see the opening night, 7.30 on March 12th, Thursday and 4.30, the phone rang and they closed the theaters and class act is to be no more. Uh, so uh, we decided to take the whole year off. Uh, in other words, we could have possibly restarted in the fall but I think at the, at the end of the day, Rob and I made the decision, you know, everything is up in the air. Why don't we just do a date, which is relatively certain and, 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 and bite the bullet all at the same time, rather than having to continue to kick the can down the road. So we've retained the same theater, which is the Studio Row Theater 2, uh, for our second season, which will be on our third year. And we will do a class act as the first show, making up for the last show we didn't. Uh, get a chance to do it. And then we're going to do a day in Hollywood and either Ukraine. And then finally, a wonderful musical. Uh, do you know this called A Baker's Wife? Yes, yes. Yes. Uh, Stephen Schwartz musical uh, for our third show. And that's all set from February 12th to toward the end of March. So we're very excited about everything. Um, okay, well, I want to touch on something else you had said <laughs> at, the, at the beginning of this with J2 Spotlight, which is you wanted to do worthy musicals. So I, I want to talk maybe a little bit about your knowledge of the Great American Songbook, because all these musicals for if anybody doesn't know musicals, all these ones you're saying are not. Uh, let's see. They haven't been written in the last 20 years, let's say. Maybe Baker's Wife. No, probably not that either. Well, let's say it's let's say it's newer than Seesaw and, <laughs> and newer than Day in Hollywood. <laughs> but but yeah, but if anybody knows the, all the musicals you've mentioned, they're just they're just not young. But can you just talk about your knowledge of the Great American Songbook? Because even right now, for those who can't see this video, which will be no one because I don't publish the video, but behind you is a sign that says Jim Jay's Jukebox, which I assume also has Frank Sinatra in it. Well, there are two, two sides of the same coin. You know, the Great American Songbook and musical theater, they're different, but the same. I mean, musical theater provided a lot of music for the Great American Songbook, as did Tin Pan Alley in Hollywood. I, I love them all. And ba basically the musicals that I love, to be honest with you, uh, are, are the ones, you know, it's essentially I grew up with. And, and, and I grew up with what certainly one of the golden age of musicals, say the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, I, 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 you know, let me back up. See, it's interesting to me that I, I'm old enough. You know, I look, you look back on legends, right? You say, Oh boy, Enrique Caruso was a legend or Al Jolson was a legend or, or uh, Mozart was a legend. Well, in the case of Frank Sinatra, I observed in real time him becoming a legend. I, I knew him when he wasn't a legend and, and record by record, by movie, by movie, by live performance, by live performance, I saw 
over 30 years, Frank Sinatra emerging from a wonderful singer into a legend. I saw it with my own eyes. And I can tell you every record, every note that was coming out from 1950s through whatever that, that created this legend. Well, the same thing is true with musical theater. You know, when I was living in New York, in the late 1960s, I was strolling down there to see Promises, Promises, or or or, or whatever, and and so so I lived with all of these things, and I would buy all the LPs, original cast, and memorize them. Uh, and what's interesting to me about this period uh, is that the people that we're working with today at J2 Spotlight, who are younger, including you, know more about this music by a country mile that I knew about the music that was that far back when I, when I was your age. And that interests me. What I have to go back that I'm, I'm talking to you about a day in Hollywood and I think you say Seesaw, for example, which was 1972, that's 50 years ago. And yet I, I think you, you're not that, but you know Seesaw. But when I look at, when I was your age, if I looked at something that was 50 years old, I didn't know it. And I actually was fascinated by that. And I said to Rob, I don't understand this. You know, all these people are coming in here, they're in their 20s and they know all this stuff. I know it because I grew up with it, but they had, to, they had to retrofit knowledge into that reality. Same with Sinatra. You know, when Sinatra came out with an album called The Swing and Affair, I bought that on day one. Uh, you weren't born when that album came out. So you may know that album because you went and, 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 and retrofitted yourself into it, but I grew up with it. It just interests me. And Rob, I said, Rob, how do they know this? How do these people know these things that, that are so ancient uh, temporarily? And he said, when they go to school, they learn about this because it was a golden age. And when he teaches at Penn State, as you know, and he said, and, and they, they talk about this era and so forth. That has never crossed my mind because I've just always had access to CDs. And then once everything went to computers only, you were even able to access even, even more stuff because CDs, it was like, well, if somebody had put a 1930s album on a CD and you could get it, that was one thing. But then when the internet exploded, you can virtually get access to anything you want. So it's never crossed my mind. And growing up, my favorite movie and favorite soundtrack was Singing in the Rain, which is 1954. Never once did it cross my mind that it wasn't of my age or of my time. I just knew that I had the videotape and I just watched it over and over and over, but never thought that, oh, it's from the 1950s. <laughs> okay, so some wrap up questions, which I realize I've taken a lot of your time today. What financial advice would you give yourself back when you started your career? It, it, it is so simple and it's amazing to me that nobody does it. I didn't do it uh, until later. And I, I, I tell you, I, I, I'm glad you asked me this because I, I love to be able to say this. Dividend reinvestment and dollar cost averaging. Forget everything else. You're 21 years old and you start putting money in every month and dollar cost averaging, reinvesting those dividends. By the time you're 65, you're going to be rich. You don't have to do anything else. Don't look anywhere. Don't speculate. Don't check. Just dollar cost averaging and dividend reinvestment. And I tell you, uh, I, 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 it turned out okay for me, but you know, I wish I had followed that advice because it's so basic and infallible. I'm, I'm so glad that you said that. <laughs> and, and also, I recently, I'm running an experiment on this podcast where I invest $1,000 into 
five different things and we're tracking it over a year and a day. And one of the accounts, I'm, I'm putting them all in separate accounts. And one of the accounts I opened is called a company called Webull. They do not offer dividend reinvestment. I just assumed everybody would offer that. They, they don't automatically take the dividend and put it back in. All that, all that means nothing other than everybody make sure that your dividends are being reinvested and not getting pulled out because that is something that can really help you in the long run. When you have time on your side, it's, it works. Jim, is there a book or resource that you have used or is a go-to for you for either business or finances at all? Uh, this, this won't fit well, given I see the sign behind you that says artistic finance. I'll, I'm going to surprise you in a way, I guess. I don't care that much about financing. I, I believe if I care much more about personal finance, uh, that I could have three times as much money as I have today. I really mean that, but I don't care. And, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to say that. Uh, I had a guy that worked for me. He used to call his broker three times every day. I, 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 I don't want to call him. It bores me. I'm not, interested. <laughs> I'm not interested. Now, I'm a lucky guy because I have the wherewithal to be able to behave that way and still be, be okay. You follow what I'm saying? If, if I were not in these circumstances, it, it might be a little bit different. But I will admit to you, it is, it is boring to me. It is not interesting to me. Um, uh, and I hope that doesn't fly, fly in the face of what you're trying to do here, because uh, I did, did give people good advice, but, that, but that's, that's just the way it is. You know, I've got things parked in a lot of ways, uh, and, and it's okay because you, you need to be happy in life and, and, and get your priorities straight. I, I strive very hard on this podcast to only talk to artists. And I, I'm straying from that a little bit and talking to some finance people and some business people. And actually, I was thinking you were more of business, but you know more about the Great American Songbook and about musical theater than I'll probably ever know my whole life. <laughs> no, I don't, you know more about the, the big river. <laughs> and no, no, I don't, you're, you're a pretty knowledgeable guy, Ethan. You really are, which, which is very impressive. Yeah, but as far as business is concerned, because I, I wasn't really a businessman, uh, you know, but, but I ended up learning about it. So I had, I had a lot of on the job training, you know, and, uh, you know, you, you learn a lot, you know, you're running the Disney channel, you know, you know, about pay television and, and marketing, but you learn a lot about business just because you have to, you know, osmosis, if nothing else. So I developed a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things that, uh, that, that, that helped me in, in good stead, you know, uh, through the years, but, but I like having finance guys around to help me so I can, con you know, I used to say two things, the two things, that, if you're running a company the way I want to run it, the two things that you want to disappear are operations and finance. If, if, if those things are gone because they're working beautifully, then you can concentrate on product and marketing, which is what I really wanted to do. And I was lucky to be able to get people that were able to take care of those things so I could take care of the things that I, that I really cared about. But, uh, but you do develop certain things. Uh, but... Uh, I mean, I remember, I just want I don't know why I'm mentioning this to you, but because, you know, uh, a lot of people have like little sayings on the wall and everything. And I, I, you know, Ben Franklin said this or Mark Twain, and I never had that except for one. After all these years, I found one that I really liked and I actually had it on my desk. It was the only one that just, that just spoke to me. And it just, I think it was Henry Ford. He said, uh, there are two kinds of people, those who think they can, and those who think they can't, and they're both right. I, I uh, anytime I have a negative thought, I think of that quote. Oh, you know that quote. I, I know, yeah, I know the quote, or at least the saying. You yeah. know, um, anytime I have a negative thought, I think it's true. 
if I if I'm thinking this, it's like if I'm if I'm not good enough for that job, I'm not good enough for that job. <laughs> Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. It's it's uh it's weird, it's real. Yeah. Okay, so Jim, my last question for you. Where can people find out more about you? Well, I have a website. My own my own website is jamiro.com. You know, I, everybody gives the URL www.jamiro.com. I, I never bother with that because just Google it. You're going to get the same thing. You know, it doesn't make any sense to worry about all that stuff. I don't know why people continue to deal with URLs. Jamiro.com. And then J2 Spotlight is J2 Spotlight NYC.com. J2, J and the number two, Spotlight NYC.com. That's where you can learn about uh, our musicals. Jamiro.com is where you can learn about the other things that I'm doing. And, and actually, I just want to say on the J2 Spotlight, if there's anybody that listens to this and likes musicals and they live near New York City, do check out J2 Spotlight because the productions, to say again, the productions they do are probably going to be the only production of that musical that is done 10 years prior or 10 years after. So if ever you want to see any of those shows, this is probably your only opportunity to see them. And they really are fully staged. I remember Will Friedwald, who's a, who's a great guy around New York, wrote a definitive book about Frank Sinatra. I know him, and he said he's excited about this. And he, he did this big article about we're going to do these stage readings. And I was really troubled by that. And I called him, I said, Will, these are not stage readings. Because I'm proud of that and, and proud of Rob. You know, uh, These are not stage readings, which one might think they are. These are fully formed productions with massive choreography, four-piece orchestra. Uh, and that's not uh, common uh, for this caliber of, of, of musical revivals. Not at all. And not to mention the theater. You said it's 88 seats. Not nine, 99 seats. How you can get a huge musical onto that tiny stage. I mean, it's like 15 feet wide by 15 feet deep. It's like a whole orchestra and tap dancing chorus. I don't know how it happens, but it does happen. It's really incredible. <laughs> yeah, when you think of the, the, the late great state of New York dance thing, or it's not where you start, it's where you finish dance, you know, all those hoofers on that stage. It was, it was so exciting and oh, and they were so good. I'm just so proud of the, these young people. That I'll tell you, young people today, in my experience, are, are getting so much better at everything than than uh, the prior generations. It's really heartening. That's a positive, positive outlook on things. <laughs> Jim, well, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time today. I, I really appreciate it. Okay, Ethan, I look forward to seeing you around Theater Row. That was our episode with Jim Jamiro. My takeaways were, Jim is good at communication. It's obvious why he's been so successful. $19 million to put a satellite in space was small potatoes for how much money was generated because of doing so. $19 million in 1982 would be $53 million today. Take advantage of dividend reinvestment and dollar cost averaging. That means owning investments that pay dividends, and when they pay dividends, make sure that they are automatically reinvested into that same investment. And the dollar cost averaging part is to continue purchasing investments consistently over time. It seems so simple, but it's solid advice. I've never known anyone to do that and not be happy with their results. In our patron-only episode, we discuss Broadway's latest revival of West Side Story, more about the future of Jim's off-Broadway musicals, and more about Disney Plus and technology. And 
Jim pays me a compliment. To access that, go to patreon.com slash artisticfinance. Patrons get early access to episodes, the extended interviews, and a private podcast feed. As always, if you want to access the outtakes but you aren't quite ready to become a patron, email me directly at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com and I'll share the audio with you directly. You can also email me with any feedback about the podcast. Like Jim mentioned, Disney was putting out movies without getting a lot of feedback, and I sometimes feel the same way with the podcast. I put it out there, but don't always get a lot of feedback. So if you have any feedback for me, please email me and help me improve the show. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.